0: You're listening to Sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms. And it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished word Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church.
1: Hey, good morning. That video is sweet. Zach and Daniel Odegaard worked on that, and they did a really good job. I don't think Daniel's here, but you can give Zach a round of applause. My name is Brad. I'm glad you're here. One of the pastors here at GCC. And yeah, like Ian said, we're kicking off a series in Philippians, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Philippians is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And it's a very encouraging and joy-filled letter about how the gospel has shaped their community. And so I'm excited to jump into this letter this summer. I'm excited to uh, see what God has for us in it. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to Philippians. It's in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. Uh, While you're turning there, I'm sure many of you are familiar with uh, Vince Lombardi and his famous speech uh, at training camp for the Green Bay Packers in 1961. So the first day of spring training after the the year prior losing the national championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles, Vince Lombardi, the head coach, uh, gathered his team together. They all sat down. And he holds up a football and says, gentlemen, This is a football, right? You're all familiar with uh, this speech, I'm sure. And it seems like a silly thing to say to a group of professional football players that this is a football, but the point is that uh, they were going to start focusing on the basics, going back to the fundamentals of the game of football. And the most fundamental, the most basic thing about the game of football is the actual ball itself. Uh, The Packers went on to win the championship that year. Vince Lombardi never lost a playoff game again in his career as a head coach. And a lot of that would attribute, uh, a lot of, of people would attribute that to his commitment to the fundamentals. And so this morning, as we start in the book of Philippians, what we're going to start with is the very basics, uh, the fundamentals. If uh, in in line with uh, this speech from Lombardi, it's as if Paul uh, was saying to all of us, gentlemen and women, gentle people, uh, this is a Christian. Paul opens his letter with a greeting. We're just going to look at the first two verses of this letter, and it's a very similar and familiar greeting to his other letters that he writes to churches. And as we're reading through Scripture, we can oftentimes just kind of breeze through passages like this, because it seems very generic, very basic. But verses like this are packed with theology, packed with truth, that sets the foundation for what Paul is going to talk about the rest of the letter. And so, our, the, our goal this morning is to answer the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Or maybe a more personal way of saying it, who am I? So let me read the first couple of verses of the letter to the Philippians, and then I'll pray and, and we'll start uh, answering that question. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your church and for gathering us all here together. And we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have not remained distant uh, from us, but you have, have made yourself known to us through uh, this book that we have, the Bible. We, we trust that these are your words, and they're words uh, that give life, uh, give meaning to our life, give us purpose, and ultimately reveal and point to your son, Jesus. Uh, Jesus, as we, as we work through this text this morning and as we go back to the basics in a sense and, and remind ourselves what it means to be Christian, what it means to be a Christian, uh, would, 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 would this time together this morning make much of you? Would we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, and <clears throat> respond to what you have done for us uh, with worship, with worship uh, in every aspect of our life? So pray that you would help me, uh, that you would speak through me, and that you would convict and challenge each of us. Uh, with what it looks like to follow you uh, and, and, and call and call the name of Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is a Christian? Now I'll, I'll address uh, the potential internal eye roll. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades, uh, maybe not even that long, but you're thinking, are we serious? Uh, this is the day I show, decided to show up to church and we're talking about what a Christian is. A uh, few things, a few thoughts as to why we're answering this question. First, we're starting here because that's where Paul starts. If we want to be faithful to preaching scripture, if we want to walk through uh, passages of of scripture in our preaching, then we need to address everything that is addressed in those passages. And this is where Paul starts. Like I said, uh, this is where he starts most of his letters with identifying who he is, identifying who his listeners are. And then saying something along the lines of grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so why, why does Paul start here in all of his letters? Uh, Paul starts here, I think, because uh, what something is determines what it does. Our actions flow out of our identity. Paul's letters are filled with uh, instructions, filled with challenges, filled with things that the listeners and readers are supposed to do. But before we can get to that, we have to first understand who we are. And Paul identifies who his listeners are in the first few sentences of his letters. So we're addressing this question because this is where Paul starts. What is a Christian? The second thing, uh, this is something we talk about a lot at GCC, and so should be a quick point. Um, one theologian says a quote, and then we'll unpack it. The heart of sanctification is the life which feeds on justification. A few big words in there. Sanctification is our growing in Christ-likeness. It's the, the continual progressive growth of a Christian in holiness over the course of our lives. It's moving from sinful actions to more obedient actions. It's changing our thoughts, uh, our feelings, our actions, our lives to be in more and more conformity to the life of Christ. That's Sanctification. Justification is a moment in time, an event where God declares us righteous. It takes place at the moment of our conversion when we admit that we are sinful, that we are in need of saving. We trust in Jesus's uh, life, death, and resurrection to provide that salvation, and God, the righteous judge, declares us no longer guilty of sin, uh, but righteous. The righteousness of Christ now belongs to us. And the the quote here, the heart of sanctification is the life which feeds on justification, is getting at this idea that us growing in Christ-likeness comes when we continue to focus on and think about our justification. Our sanctification flows out of our justification. The more and more we contemplate and remind ourselves and dwell on the fact that we have been made righteous in Christ, the more our life starts to look like Christ. Puritan theologian Edward Fisher uses a helpful illustration, and talks about external conformity to rules, following the commands and laws of the Bible, without an internal reality fueling it, is akin to watering every part of a tree except its roots and expecting it to grow. And so if you read through the Bible and all you get from it is a list of instructions to do, and you try to do those things without first considering the internal reality that is the fuel for doing those things, it's like watering a tree everywhere else but the roots and hoping that it would grow. The roots of the tree is our identity, who we are, who God has made us to be, and then we grow from that. And lastly, uh, we're answering this question, what is a Christian? Because uh, there is a lot of confusion in the world, and I think also sometimes in the church, about what a Christian is. Uh, this, uh, so Rick and I do a podcast called Saints in Society. Check it out. Like, comment, subscribe. Leave a review. Um, Just kidding. I mean, not really, but uh, only if you want to. Uh, And this last week, we did something new uh, for our podcast episode, and Saints and Society hit the streets. And we went on to U of O campus, and uh, Zach and Daniel followed us around with cameras, and we had microphones. It was uh, really challenging, a lot of fun, and we just talked to people. We talked to students on the U of O campus. And we ask kind of uh, the same set of questions to everyone we talk to. Usually we start with, what is your religious convictions or what's your worldview? What do you believe? Uh, Those kinds of things. We always, always ask, what do you think about Christianity? What is your understanding of what Christianity is? What would you say from your perspective is the main message of Christianity? And then we'd ask them about truth and morality and those kinds of things. We talk to a wide variety of people, people who would consider themselves agnostic, people who would consider themselves Christian, uh, people who would consider themselves atheist, people who uh, were Jewish, some who grew up going to church, who went to private school, uh, people who went to church throughout their life and have since walked away. Wide variety, wide range of people with a wide range of backgrounds. And the answer to the question, what do you think Christianity is all about? Or what do you think a Christian is? Was the same across the board. It was something along the lines of do good things, get good results. If you follow the teachings of the Bible, then you'll hopefully make it into heaven. It was that mixed with kind of a relativist, uh, you know, the great thing about Christianity is it's so diverse, and so you can make it whatever you want to be. And so just do good things and do what feels right in your heart, and then you'll make it into heaven. This is not what the Bible teaches about Christianity, and yet it was what we found, at least in our small little sample of people we talked to uh, on campus the other day the overarching view of Christianity. It's kind of this spiritual or this like religious Christian karma view of Christianity, where when you do good things, you get good results ultimately into eternity. I believe clarity is kindness. And so to be kind to our non-believing neighbors, we need to be really clear about what it means to be a Christian. And I think unfortunately, oftentimes this misunderstanding or misrepresentation of Christianity can find its way into the church. And so never want to assume that everyone who attends a church on a Sunday morning is uh, aware of what the Bible has to say about what a Christian is or what Christianity is, what the gospel is. So for these three reasons, we're going to address this question. So what is a Christian? Who am I? Who are you? Four points, and along with these four, four points are going to be four errors that common, commonly come up in our definition of a Christian. I'll give them to you now, and then we'll walk through them. A Christian is a saint in Christ a servant of Christ, is sustained by Christ, and belongs to the body of Christ. So a Christian is a saint in Christ, a servant of Christ, is sustained by Christ, and belongs to the body of Christ. So first, saint in Christ. This is what Paul calls the Philippians. He says, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus throughout Philippi. The word saint, we've talked about this a lot at GCC. It's one of Rick's favorite words to preach on. The word means holy. And so as an adjective, it is holy. In noun form, it means holy one. That's what saint means, a holy one. Now, the word holy in and of itself means set apart or belonging to a different order of things. It's living in a different sphere or a different world in a sense. And it's one of the most common ways to talk about God. We see this all throughout scripture that God is holy. Holy. He's other than us. He's different. He's set apart. This also has implications for morality. God is, is uh, God obta- obtains, God, uh, God has, we'll just use a simple word, has moral perfection. He doesn't do anything immoral or wrong or evil. So holiness also has implications for moral perfection. Now, this is the word most often used to describe God, a holy God set apart and morally perfect. And now here, Paul is using it to describe us, to describe people, to describe uh, uh, these people who are in Christ. And notice he says, all, to all the saints who are in Philippi. There are some traditions that would view sainthood or saints as kind of a super Christian, people who've done a lot of really, really good things. And so there's a different kind of reverence for that. We do not see that in scripture. What we see is that all Christians are referred to as saints, as holy ones. The same word used to describe God. Now the question is, how? How do humans get the same title as God, holy? Because we are not like God. If God is set apart, if God is a creator, if God is powerful and sovereign and mighty, uh, if he is completely, totally just and righteous and morally perfect, we're nowhere close to that. If we're honest with ourselves, we see lives of, uh, of brokenness, where we make messes of things. We hurt ourselves. We hurt others with our decisions. This is all because of sin. It's all because of a rebellion and a rejection of the God who made us. So how do, how do sinful people that are broken and messy and, and very far from God get the same title holy as God himself? Now, the wrong answer to this question is our first error. So I said four points and four errors. The first error when defining and understanding Christianity is the legalism error. Legalism is a view that our holiness is attainable or accessible if we follow the law. If we do good things, if we follow God's law, then maybe God will love us and give us holiness, righteousness, and forgiveness. Uh, it's kind of like Jesus is our spotter. So if you've ever done, uh, if you've ever worked out, you've done like a bench press and your spotter, you're like struggling and the spotter taps the bar a little bit and says, it's all you, bro, right? So that's a view of Jesus that we can have where we're doing the majority of the work and Jesus comes along and just gives us a little bit of a lift and then says, all you. That's legalism in a a silly sense, right? It is up to us to make ourselves favorable, to make ourselves acceptable to God, and then maybe we get a little help from Jesus on the way, but the majority of the work is done by us. This is legalism, and it's an error in understanding and defining Christianity. If we look again at what Paul says, he says, saints in Christ Jesus. So how do sinful people get the title of holy, the same title and word that's used to describe God? Because we're in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. We're united with him. The theological concept is union with Christ. It's it's where we become one with Christ through faith. You can think about it like marriage. In marriage, two become one. When Jenna and I got married, all of everything that I had became hers and everything that she had became mine. We now share everything together because of union. And our union with Christ is the same. Christ takes all of our sin all of our mess, all of our brokenness, all of our disobedience, our failure to love God, our failure to love others, and he takes that to the cross. That's now his. And what we get from this relationship is everything that belongs to him, which is purity and righteousness and holiness, perfection, royalty, and eternal inheritance, forgiveness, life. And it's only by uniting ourselves to Christ in faith that those things become ours, including and especially holiness. One commentator says that we are in Christ like a bird is in air, a fish is in water, the roots of a tree, and the soil of the ground. If you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, if you've trusted in him for salvation, you are engulfed, surrounded, absorbed completely and totally by Christ, and there's nothing that can change that or take you out of that place. And this is all an act of God's grace, like Ian said earlier. This is not according to our works. This is not something that we have somehow done on our own. God didn't wait for us to become lovable before he started loving us. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God showed us his love while we were still sinners. And so it is not, it's not legalism that makes us holy. It's not law following that makes us holy. It's being united to the Holy One. If holiness is Christ and we are in him and one with him, then we get that same holiness. And he's dealt with our sin. So so I hope you hear me in this. If you are in Christ, you are not a sinner, but a saint. You sin, we all do. But our identity is a holy one, is a saint, because we've been united to the holy one, Christ. So we're saints in Christ. If there's a legalism error, we'll go to the second one now. There's an antinomian error. Big word. Let me break it down. Anti means against. Namas or, or, means law, and so it's the opposite of legalism, anti-law. This is a view where uh, grace is very cheap, and so we can do with it whatever we want. God saved us, and because there's an abundance of grace and forgiveness, we just, kinda, we, we just get, get, get to kind of do whatever we want. Ask for forgiveness and not permission. Uh, this is uh, sort legalism, Jesus is my spotter. This one is Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> he's like really encouraging, and he's cool with whatever I do. He's like, yeah, go for it. I love you no matter what. Just go do it. Okay? We, we like Jesus as Savior, but then we reject him as Lord because we want autonomy over our lives. We're great with the fire insurance and the get out of hell free card that Jesus offers, but we don't want him to run and rule our lives. But our second point in defining Christianity is that we are servants of Christ. Paul uses this to describe him and Timothy, but it applies to all Christians. We are servants of Christ. You can't pick and choose the parts of Jesus you like. You can't take some and leave the other. You can't take Jesus as Savior and leave Jesus as Lord. It's all or nothing. And all is both Savior and Lord. Uh, This word servant, uh, you probably have a footnote in your Bible. It could also be translated, and I think probably more accurately translated, slave. So there's, I think, a more serious and more weighty connotation to this phrase than maybe we get with servant. We're slaves of Christ. We're slaves to Christ meaning that we belong to him as our master. Now, this probably makes you uncomfortable because we prefer autonomy. We'd rather be autonomous. We don't like the idea of submitting to some kind of outside force or outside rule or outside authority. But the reality is, is that we are all slaves to something. None of us are autonomous. None of us are completely and totally in control and in charge of our lives, no matter how in control we think we are. Outside of Christ, ultimately, we're slaves to sin, and we willingly do sin's bidding while assuming all along we're in control. But if you're in Christ, Christ has defeated sin. He's liberated us from the oppressive rule of sin, not to just float off into autonomy and kind of do our own thing, but now to serve him as a new master. This is a major part of the storyline of Exodus. We just got done doing a sermon series through Exodus. God rescues the Israelites from slavery to an oppressive master, Pharaoh. And he doesn't rescue them and say, go into the wilderness and do whatever you want. He says, come serve me now. Now I will be a master, but a very different kind of master. A master who loves you, who cares about you, who is compassionate and kind, and who has your best intentions in mind. This is the master that Jesus is. He asks us to do very difficult things. In fact, he describes following him like picking up your cross, like death, like walking to your death. But he also says that when you do that, that's when you actually find life. And so we are servants of Christ. We are slaves to Christ. We belong to him and our lives are committed to serving him and obeying his will. Now, there could be on the surface a contradiction between saint and servant or slave, because on one hand, the saint is free, free from the bondage of sin, free in Christ to live. But then on the other hand, a slave is, is in bondage in a sense, is, it belongs to a master an authority outside of themselves. Alec Motier helps kind of uh, address this contradiction. It says, we are now for the first time free, talking about saints. We are now for the first time free free from the penalty, bondage, and degradation of sin. We are now truly human, for Christ is true man, and those who are in him possess a human nature matching their creator's intention. But the saint is obedient. Great though our privileges are, they are not to be equated with dressing gown, which is a robe, I had to look that up, this guy's British, and slippers, they are staff and shoes for pilgrimage, armor for battle, and a plow for the field. Responsive obedience characterizes us, for the saint in Christ Jesus is necessarily also a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus is both Savior and Lord, and the Christian, therefore, is both a saint and a servant. So we're, uh, we're saints in Christ, servants of Christ. We'll move on, sustained by Christ. So there's the legalism error, there's the antinomian error. We must follow the law to make God love us. God loves us, so we don't need to follow the law. And then there's what I'm going to call the Roman Catholic error, which says we are saved by grace and then we stay saved by works. Uh, So all these different types of Jesus, this one would be like Jesus is my coach, like my football coach, baseball coach, something like that. He got me on the team, but now I need to work really hard to stay on the team so I don't get kicked off the team. If I underperform now that I'm on the team, I'm going to get kicked off the team. That's this idea that Jesus has saved us, but now it's up to us to stay saved. God let us in, we better do everything we can to stay in. But again, this is not biblical Christianity. Verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor, one-way love, God pursuing us in kindness when we don't deserve it. And everything God does for us is by grace. He never stops giving us grace. We receive grace at our salvation, and we continue to receive grace day in, day out, minute by minute, God pouring it out on us. God's grace comes from an unending well that, we will, never run, that will never run dry, will never run out. You can never out God's grace. We are in need of it daily, and he provides it daily. God is the one sustaining us by his grace day in and day out. And it also says peace which is reconciliation both vertically with us and God, but also reconciliation horizontally with us and people. The wall of hostility has been broken down between us and God because of what Christ did on the cross. And now we can reconcile with one another because we recognize what we've been forgiven of by God. We can forgive others. But peace also means that there's a completeness or a wholeness. There's a totality to our life when we have peace from God, where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And so in other words, we're called to do difficult things as Christians. The Christian life is not an easy one, but God has promised to sustain us by continually providing for us grace and peace, grace and peace, his unmerited favor, his presence, anything and everything we need to follow him, to serve him. We're saints in Christ, servants of Christ, sustained ultimately by Christ. And then lastly, we belong to the body of Christ. I tried really hard to find another S word and I couldn't do it. The thesaurus wasn't long enough. Um, So last point, we belong to the body of Christ. Paul says to all the saints, plural, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, locally specific, with the overseers and deacons, identified offices of leadership. Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to a particular gathered group of people in a particular place, a local church in Philippi. So another error in our definition or understanding of Christianity is the individualism error, that it's just me and Jesus. I love Jesus, all about him, want nothing to do with organized religion or the institution of the church. My church is out in the woods. My church is when I'm gardening. My church is out on the water. This is like Jesus is my travel buddy. Jesus goes with you wherever you go. That's true, but church is not wherever you go. Hopefully there's a church wherever you go. I'm digging a hole. You know what I mean? Jesus is my travel buddy. It's just me and him hitting the road, doing whatever, and I don't need anyone else in my Christian world or my relationship with Jesus. It's just him and me. But again, this is not biblical Christianity. In fact, it would have been unheard of in the first century for someone to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not part of a church. It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. The gospel saves us into a community, into a body, into a people, into the church. There's no such thing as Christianity apart from the church. To be a Christian, according to Scripture, is to be a part of a church. Michael Byrd says it like this, It becomes practically impossible to believe in the gospel without belonging to the gospel community. For as God draws us into his own triune life, he does that by drawing us into a community that praises the Father, imitates the Son, and follows the Spirit. Joining the church is not then an optional extra after one receives Christ. How can one receive Christ's promise and then reject Christ's own body? A Christian belongs to the body of Christ. The gospel creates a church. The natural end result of the gospel is a community of people that all believe it that live it out with one another. And so my challenge, for those of you in who, here who might claim the title of Christian but reject the body of Christ, my challenge is join a church. I think that is a, a biblical mandate that should be followed. You cannot live out the gospel if you're not part of the gospel, a gospel community. So true biblical Christianity is not legalism, it's not antinomianism, it's not Roman Catholicism, and it's not individualism. We've been saved by Christ sent by Christ, we're sustained by Christ, and ultimately we belong to the body of Christ. It's by grace that we've been given an identity in Christ, a mission in Christ, a community in Christ, and everything we need to live abundant lives for Christ. In these two short verses, this very brief introduction, one long sentence, it's 38 words in the ESV, there's a phrase that rings out three times like a consistent drumbeat, and it's Christ Jesus the consistent thread through all of this is Christ. In fact, you can't define what a Christian is without Christ. It is Christ who has made us holy. We're saints in him. It is Christ who has sent us on mission. We're servants of him. It is Christ who gives us everything we need, provides grace and peace. And it is Christ's body that we are ultimately a part of. And so to rightly understand who we are and then what we're supposed to do in light of that, we must first know who Jesus is and what he's done. We're going to skip ahead in Philippians here in our introduction because this, to an, another passage. And I think this passage is vital in understanding the letter of Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 is what we're going to read here. We'll look at this more in depth when we get to it in the series. But think of this passage like the hub of a wheel, and everything else Paul is saying is like a spoke that comes off of it. It's all connected to this, this, this poem, if you will, about who Christ is and what he's done. It's central to understanding Philippians. And so we'll, we'll look at it here in week one, and we'll come back to it later. It says, th- by the way, uh, this would be a great passage to memorize. Like, challenge yourself to memorize Philippians 2, 6 through 11 over the summer as we work through Philippians. I think that'd be awesome. Okay, here, I'll read it. Talking about Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus isn't our spotter, he's not our homeboy, he's not our coach, and he's not our travel companion. He's the God of the universe, the creator of all things, sovereign and supreme over everything, who yet took on human flesh, who came to live among his sinful creation that had rejected him and rebelled against his law. He became a man who was dependent upon other men and women for his life, and yet who never sinned, who perfectly obeyed God's law, perfectly loved God, perfectly loved his neighbor, and was perfectly obedient even to the point of death, dying on a cross, a sinner's death, the sinner's death that we all deserve for our rebellion, for our sin, Jesus took our place. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave victoriously, and now he sits right now as we speak, June 4th, what is it, 1055 a.m., Jesus sits right now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and rules over everything. That's who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, the Son of God, took on human flesh. That's what he did. Lived, died, and rose again so that we all might be reconciled to our Creator, so that we all might have abundant eternal life, so that we might be forgiven. That's what he's done. And because of that, we're saints and servants, sent out into the world to serve him, to proclaim the gospel, and to live together as a community of Christ followers. And what do we do in response to this? We worship. It says one day, every knee is gonna bow, every tongue is gonna confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We have an opportunity to get a head start on that and to do that every day of our lives, to bend the knee to Jesus the King and profess with our mouth that he is Lord and give him the glory for the salvation that he has graciously provided us for the grace that he continues to give us. And GCC, if if we commit to making much of Christ in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church, Building our lives in the church on the gospel will come naturally. If we commit to thinking about Jesus, to focusing on Jesus, to dwelling on him, to making much of him, to preaching him, worshiping him, talking about him, the rest comes naturally. It's not easy, but it comes naturally. So my hope for us as a church, my, my, my challenge is that we would commit to making much of Christ. As we look at what Philippians tells us about the gospel being a blueprint to build our lives and the church, through it all, we would make much of Christ and we would worship him with everything we are and everything we have. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son to take our place, to live the life we should but couldn't, to die the death that we should but don't have to, and to rise victoriously from the grave to give anyone who would come to you eternal life forgiveness of sins. God, thank you for declaring us saints, holy, righteous. Thank you for calling us into service of you, the King. Thank you for sustaining us by giving us everything we need to do any of that. And thank you for giving us a community of people to belong to, to be loved by and to return love to. That it should help us to do that this summer and all the days of our lives as we make much of you, Jesus, and worship you. Amen.